Hey, this is Dave Bacall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. And this week, I'm joined by somebody I've been looking forward to for a long time, Matthew Rostein, who's the media director at the PDGA, or the Professional Disc Golf Association. My love affair with disc golf began during the pandemic when I needed to get outside and I wanted something that was accessible to me, and I got introduced to it from some family members. It is a highly addicting activity. But the more I learned about it, and I learned about the technology involved in the discs, the ancient history of discs in competition, as opposed to Frisbees, for example, that I grew up in California and other places, I became more and more interested. And recently, over the last few years, disc golf athletes are signing multi-million dollar contracts that taking this sport from a hobbyist activity maybe 30 or 40 years ago into mainstream sport media. It's one of the fastest growing sports. It's one of the most accessible sports here in the States and in Western Europe and all over the world for that matter. And it's a fascinating conversation. If you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, or you're just new to it and just learning a little bit about it, I know you'll love this conversation. Matthew brings a wealth of experience, himself being a competitive golfer, while also working for the organization. So join us for the conversation on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one. Matt Rostein, thank you for coming on the QTS Experience. How are you? I'm doing great, David. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we get to talk today about one of my favorite topics of the last year and a half. Um, one of the great blessings that came out of the chaos of the pandemic. It involves technology, which I love. It involves, um, in, in a great way, it embraces um, diversity and um, some of the social uh, issues of the day. Um, it's great to champion these things. And it involves being out of doors and being healthy. Normally on paper, it's that doesn't sound very interesting to me. But I got introduced last January by some family of mine out of Texas of visiting me here in the Atlanta area. They grabbed um, some discs and said, hey, we're going to go play disc golf. And I thought, no, this is not going to go well. It's just Frisbee. I've been playing Frisbee since I was a kid. And that's where they, they laughed at me and took me off to one of my local disc golf courses, one of the best in the country here in Atlanta. Um, certainly for at the amateur level. And I absolutely fell in love. And I learned later, uh, I'm not the only person like that. And so we're talking about disc golf. And um, why don't you uh, why don't you introduce yourself and what your role is in the community of disc golf? Yeah, well, I'm the um, PDGA's media manager. Now, who's the PDGA, PDGA? I'm sorry, go we're ahead. We're the, the Professional Disc Golf Association. Uh, we're the official sanctioning body, the official governing body of the sport worldwide. Um, I've been in this role for a little over two years now, okay. uh, but I've been playing the sport for over 20 years. And, you know, my, my story is similar to yours, except for it took place when I was a bit of a younger man. And, um, you know, I started throwing Frisbee with my friends, like a lot of people do. And one day discovered that there's, there was this sport hiding out in my backyard at the local park. Um, started going out, met a, a group of uh, guys that showed me how to play and, you know, got bit by the competitive bug. And it's been uh, it's been a lifetime of enjoyment since then. It's, it's weird to say it's a love story, but it's like a lot of things. It's love, hate. There are times when I most of the time I'm very excited. Other times I'm, you know, 
probably a good thing they're made out of plastic or I'd break them in half, but uh, I love them. But what, so just to start off for those of my audience that are listening, um, that have stuck around, which I think is most of them, what's the difference between quote unquote Frisbee and disc golf? And then let's talk about disc golf proper. Maybe. It's a great question. Um, the sport really did begin as what we might call Frisbee golf. Um, it was an adaptation of the sport of golf using, you know, what was becoming a very popular um, recreational toy at the time, uh, Whammo's Frisbee. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was an event that started to pop up at Frisbee tournaments that involved things like um, distance contests, ultimate Frisbee, other familiar Frisbee sports. Um, but the the actual disc itself started to evolve in the early 1980s. Uh, it was discovered that by making the disc thinner, uh, a little bit firmer and faster, uh, disc golfers were able to get uh, greater distances and control. And so disc golf started to diverge from a traditional Frisbee. Um, that on top of the fact that the Whammo um, company owned the patent, uh, I'm sorry, the, the trademark for the name Frisbee, um, kind of lent itself to the sport, identifying itself not as frisbee golf but as disc golf. Mm. So there's a, um, you know, I've I've heard of discs. I mean, discs have been part of the Olympic Games. People have used discs for um, you know a millennia. As long as we've been competing, they've used discs. When you when you try to describe to somebody um, the uh, uh, what a disc is. Um, is it what why don't you help our audience to understand that if you were to talk about the disc itself which is at the you know it's in the name um help us to understand um a little bit about is it so for into just to interrupt myself if i think frisbee whammo or otherwise i essentially throw the same disc for the you know since i started throwing a frisbee in the 60s uh until just a few weeks ago at the Florida beach. It's, it's not a big difference. Um, whereas discs and disc golf, not just are different from a Frisbee, but they are different amongst themselves. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. That it's one of the things that people have, um, the hardest time wrapping their heads around when they first find out about the sport. You know, we say we play, we play golf with discs, which are like Frisbees. And then we tell them that we have a stack of, you know, 10, 15, 20 discs that we, we bring with us and they, and they kind of give you that look like you you must be crazy. You know, how different can one disc be from another? I was, uh, I was giving a tour to a, a photographer, um, at the Las Vegas challenge a couple weeks ago, a very seasoned sports photographer had done football, done NASCAR racing, um, but had never heard of the sport of disc golf. So I was in this conversation where I was really trying to walk him through the sport. Mm -hmm. And we got to this point where he, he asked, why in the world would you carry so many types of, of discs? How different can they be? Um, and I, I was able to, to explain it to him in a, I thought a, a pretty simple way. I said, imagine you were explaining the sport of golf to somebody for the first time. And you told them, well, this, the point of this sport is that we walk around and we, we hit the ball with the stick, right? We take a stick and we hit this ball. And they say, okay, I get that. That kind of makes sense. And then we tell them, well, we carry uh, we carry a bag of about, 15 different sticks with which we hit the ball and they might look at you and say, well, how, how different can one stick be from another stick? Mm -hmm. And it's really the same in the sport of disc golf. Whereas um, the layman may not experience a big difference between two types of discs, but when we start to get to 
a competitive level where we were trying to accomplish different things uh, depending on the situation of the round, different discs make a big difference. Right. So the, I, you know, as you're explaining that I'm imagining if I'm a golfer, I have, um, you know, I start off at a tee. Disc golf, I believe it's the same. We start off at a tee and the goal is in the fewest shots possible to get our disc or the ball into the target, the hole, or in our case, a basket. We'll talk about the basket in a minute. And in order to do that, there's a shape to the course in front of me. Some of them are straight, very few of them, but they have some have trees growing over them, just like professional, you know, just like ball, what we call ball golf, which by the way, all my non-disc golfer friends roll their eyes whenever I say ball golf, like, really, you got it. Why don't you just say golf? You know, you're not indoctrinated. You'll learn later, but it's that kind that's, of idea. They may true. curve to the right. They may curve to the left. They may have water obstacles. You may, you might want to throw a high shot that lands gently. You might want to throw a powerful shot that goes straight and you know, all these are the things. And in order to shape that, when we were having a conversation the other day, uh, just sort of a preliminary conversation, um, the, the idea of that disc is both the ball and the stick. And, it, you know, if you could talk about that a little bit on how you shot shape and, the, you know, all the different things you can use these things for. Yeah, you know, you look at a golfer and they they, you know, really a dedicated golfer will have a relationship with his clubs or her clubs. Um, you know, they, they have found just the right set that fits them, that suits them well. And then the balls are a little bit more disposable. You know, they go out and they buy a pack, you know, at the course and uh, hit a couple in the water. It's no big deal. They move on. Um, rarely will you see a golfer, you know, throw their club into the water. Although occasionally it happens uh, out of frustration. Um, sure. But with disc golf, it is a, a very interesting marriage of the two where, um, the discs are not nearly as expensive as a golf club, but there is that relationship between the disc golfer and their set of discs. Um, but they have much larger collections than a, a golfer would have of, of clubs. You know, we probably keep about 20 in our bag to go out to play the round. And then a lot of gol disc golfers who have, um, especially those who have, who have really gotten bit by the bug will have, you know, sometimes crates of them at home backups are their favorites collectors discs. Um, discs that just have fond memories. Uh, you know, it, it's a real, it's a real collector's market um, for discs, not just for use, but uh, the same way, you know, sports fans collect, uh, you know, baseball cards. You have your favorites, it brings back warm memories and you keep them in a nice collection that's safe at your home. I've also found that um, even at the pro level, but people, they get a, um, they get a disc that they feel like is very predictable. It's going to do certain things, not just what's advertised, but they've thrown it so many times that, um, that they under, they, they've got a really good relationship with how is this going to fly? Assuming I do my part, I, I assume the stance, I throw it a correct, very distinct way. We'll talk about that in a minute, but if I do my part, this disc almost without fail is going to do this. And that um, it, it's also funny when they get to a shot where if they make a mistake, they're going to lose their disc. It's going to go you know, off the cliff into the water, into the um, I haven't seen a lot of people deliberately throw their discs into the water, but I have seen them go charging in after it if it, it goes in there and they got to find that thing. There is there is a danger in falling too in love with any <laughs> of your discs because you'll find yourself on a tee staring at some water and wondering 
should I throw my favorite disc because it's going to give me the best chance to get a birdie, but it's also going to risk, um, you know, losing something that I, that I care about and have an attachment to. So that's another experience that, you know, your traditional golfer probably doesn't go through. Yeah, probably not. So let's back up for a second. We've talked a little bit about sort of how this works, which is there's a course that you play on. If you imagine a, a traditional golf course, um, you have hazards, whether that's sand trips or the water that we've talked about or the shape of the course or whatever, but you have that, you have the environment, which is um, some of the, some of the um, course that you're playing on is rougher or smoother. Um, you have weather elements, the wind, rain, et cetera. So long as there's not lightning, my experiences, we, we play through those as long as it's not dangerous, but it can be uncomfortable how did how does it work you start off at the start of a course how many holes are there um and and how does the scoring work and what's the what's the objective um you know because the sport started as an adaptation of golf so much of the rules so much of the layout is really analogous to to golf so hmm. we started at tee uh, we end at the basket or target but we also call the area around the basket or target we call that the green so, you know, we play tee to green. Um, we have typically we use the same numbers that you would find on a golf course. So most courses are 18. Um, and sometimes you get a nine hole course like you would in golf. Mm -hmm. um, we also use pars, which is the number that you would expect to get um, uh, the number of throws you would expect to take you to finish a hole mm -hmm. uh, similar to, to golf. Uh, unlike golf, we, we tend to measure our distances in feet rather than yards. Um, and that actually helps it translate fairly well to where, uh, a 300 foot, uh, par three in, in disc golf might be equivalent to, uh, a 250 or 300 yard par three in, in, in golf. When you, um, when you're out there on the course, are, are the penalties for like in traditional golf, you've got out of bounds, you've got, you know, a variety of things. Is it similar in experience? Yes, we, we have um, very similar rules, very similar penalties. We have um, some that are you won't find in traditional golf um, just because of the nature of the flying disc. You know, for instance, um, occasionally they will restrict the, the direction that your disc can fly. We call those mandatory routes. Um, I'm, not, I'm not aware of a, a similar rule in, in, in golf, but we also have out-of-bounds areas and hazards. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of overlap, um, but we also have some, some unique rules as well. So when you get in golf, when you get to the green, there's a hole in yes. disc golf where you call it the basket. Can you describe what is that? What's the evolution of it? How does it work? When the sport uh, first began in the early seventies, we, we played to targets, um, which were often just posts with markings on them. If you hit the post with your with your frisbee, you've completed the hole. Mm. Um, but in the mid 1970s, uh, one of the seminal figures in our sport, Steady Ed Hedrick, um, who was a an executive at the Whammo Corporation, so he he played a large part in developing the frisbee over the previous 10 or 15 years. At that point, uh, developed what was initially called the pole hole, and now commonly referred to as the basket. Um, it is a typically made out of um, out of metal. Um, it has a, I would say probably a foot and a half wide, um, basket, um, on the pole, and then a series of suspended chains that are meant to, uh, 
stop the momentum of the disc and let it fall gently into the basket. Um, that was that was Steady Ed's big innovation was this idea of using chains to catch the flying disc and to place it in the target. Um, and from there, you know, the sport really took off with that innovation. There's so much to this idea. Um, I know disc golfers just love the sound of the disc hitting the chains and falling into the basket. It is such a, uh, you know, it's, it's almost a Pavlovian response because you know when you hear that sound you hear the right sound you get the reward you get your yeah. par you get your birdie whatever it is and so uh, there's this wonderful relationship between disc golfers and uh, the sound of the chains yeah it's probably similar to the sound of uh, you know a ball hitting the bottom of the cup although um, I think in golf it's a little bit more favorable if you hear the ball in the cup pretty much without exception you've had a successful um, result I have had many results with chains where I got the sound, but because I didn't hit it correctly or just bad luck, my disc went through, which is very rare, but does happen. And it will go, it'll bounce off of those, right? There's skill involved in hitting it just the right way. It's not incredibly difficult if you're able to hit it, but I see it happen all the time. Um, it, it's almost like flipping over four Kings and you think you just crushed it in poker only to have the the four aces. Like, what are the odd, you know, how this happened? And then the worst uh, possible result is not only does it bounce off, but it rolls away. It just feels like I need to call up somebody and increase my tithing or repent or doing something like the, this golf gods are mad at me. Has that ever happened to you? Um, yeah, far too often, far too often. Um, you know, of course that you, you do get your, your lip outs. I think they call it, uh, on the, on the golf course. And so right. uh, it's not unheard of, but yes, the, the cut throughs, the, the spit outs, the chain outs that we call, you know, there's all different manners of being disappointed, uh, at the basket. Yeah. It's like a bad beat in poker. You know, you never remember maybe if you won, I guess the, the world series of poker, you know, you, you'll remember that but you will remember whether it knocks you out of the tournament or not, those bad beats that you take. I just, yeah, I guess that's human nature. Um, and would you say the basket um, inventor's name was? Uh, Ed Hedrick. You, you said steady Ed Hedrick. That made me smile. He sounds like a, a classic rock bass player from Hogwarts. I he think was that's really cool. He, I think that that's, you know, uh, he was a very fascinating individual because he was, uh, you know, he was the consummate businessman. Um, he was, um, I believe his background was in, in the military. Uh, and then he went to work for Whammo and was, a, was a businessman, but also had this sort of rebellious sort of counterculture spirit as well. So he's kind of, a, an enigmatic figure for sure. So is that kind of the, as you think about that, so I'd heard of disc golf over the last, I guess, couple decades and it felt almost like, um, almost wanted to say mountain biking. That's, that's probably not a great, I, I've got a, a long love relationship with dirt bike racing. A lot of the dirt bike guys in Southern California where I lived um, for a long period of time, you know, mountain biking were kind of was born out of uh, uh, modified BMX bikes, et cetera. Uh, but it, when you say counterculture, it kind of reminds me of that. Like even maybe ultimate Frisbee kind of counterculture. It's not your traditional, um, ball sport and uh what what was that history like because when i first thought about it and i i probably have it wrong but i thought of it as a um i don't know like a hippie sport you know that's kind of the the hippies the counterculture the you know 
early music, very much, you know, classic rock anyway, kind of counterculture to uh, big band and the other things that are on. That's kind of the part of the, at least the cultural roots, maybe not the music, which came out of the blues and um, other stuff for rock and roll, but certainly how they dressed and that, that early days of that community. Um, when you imagine, or you think about it, and you know, the history much better than me, was there a strong counterculture element to the original disc golf world? Absolutely. Um, and I think that just was a product of the, the era that the sport emerged into, um, mm. you know, the first organized Frisbee, um, competition was in the, in the 1960s. And then the sport of disc golf, uh, started to evolve in the early seventies and became formalized in the mid seventies. And so it was right in the heart of that counterculture movement. So I'm not sure if there's necessarily anything about Frisbee or disc sports that, um, is, you know, inherently counterculture, but, just the fact that that's when that's when the sport grew up we grew up in that era and so there will always be that association it, it, what's cool is when i discovered it <clears throat> i would if i had no uh i had very little um preconceived just a little bit as i've expressed but what i experienced when i showed up in january of 21 was so different than what i imagined um, the, first of all, the range of the players and, and by that, I mean, age, um, young men, young women, uh, middle-aged people like me in their fifties and sixties, male, female, um, most of whom did not look athletic. Um, certainly I did not look athletic. I'm six, three, uh, now a svelte 290 pounds down from my, uh, 307, but uh, you know, I look like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man with a backpack stomping through uh, the park. Um, but this huge range of ethnicity and color and gender and just groups of people, um, some more serious, some less serious, um, all seeming to have a good time. I never saw a Piper Bowl passed. I didn't see people with their, um, which I've seen many, many times in the infield of a NASCAR field or at a dirt bike race or a hundred other things. Um, not that I participated, this is a corporate podcast, but, um, you know, I, I saw what I saw was this just a slice of life. So how do we go from counterculture roots to this joy and counterculture people? One of our favorite things, we'll get to this later. One of our favorite events last year was when Nathan queen won before that in our very limited experience, it's Eagle McMahon. It's Ricky Wysocki. It's Paul Macbeth, you know, throwing at Chris Dickerson, which kind of looks like us rednecks out here because he's a, he's a Tennessee uh, man. You know, we get it. Nathan shows up and we just started laughing. Hawaiian shirt, things nesting in his beard. Great personality over the top. Um, if you had said that's a professional athlete, he fits no, his shape, his sight, like no, all barriers destroyed is absolutely awesome. Uh, they still had the same competitive spirit and this great thing. So how do you go from counterculture, the Nathan Queens of the world and people like that to um, a very sophisticated, in some cases, corporate with corporate trainer or um, personal trainers, managers, um, very successful contracts to play this. How, what's that journey like? 
It's yeah, it's a great question. Um, how did we go from counterculture sport to mainstream uh, mainstream sport with real athletes and real uh, real training regimens? You know, I think it, it was just an evolution. Um, you know, love them or hate them, the hippies uh, came up with some cool stuff, and you know, uh, the Beatles, you know, at one right. point were were counterculture, and now now they're mainstream. Everybody yeah. loves the Beatles. Sure, Paul McCartney. Um, that's right. You know, navigating your way through, uh, navigating your way through the woods with a disc started off as a counterculture activity, but it has such universal appeal that over the years, as it's become more widely known, it's become more widely accessible, has just caught the imagination of a wider general public. And and to that point, I mean, it's one of the fastest growing sports um, in the world, not just the States, in the world. It's, it's, it's so popular because it's so accessible. One of the other things that I liked, and I, I mean this in the best possible way, when um, I was on the tee pad playing, even to this day, um, you know, you see a variety, you know, the whole, you're walking past different holes and you're watching people play. And in a hole near us was a younger couple, maybe late teens, early 20s, something like that. The guy looked like a, uh, an athlete very, you know, really, um, not, not bulky, but strong, lean. And the gal that was with him, uh, just looked like a, just a person walking, didn't look particularly athletic. When she got up and threw the disc, she out threw him, she out threw everybody in my group. And we're not small, you know, this wasn't a, a weightlifting contest or anything like that, which she probably still beat me, but just her form her ability to apply physics to that disc, her um, her skill at reading what what's the right choice for one uh, in terms of power to throw, disc selection, uh, manipulating my body, smoke, and you see that over and over and over. Whether it's on the uh, professional female side or professional male side, body mass is not an indicator necessarily of. I'm sh- I'm certain that some strength helps, but your elasticity, your form, your execution, it's its one of the best lever, levelers of any sport I've ever seen. You're so right about that. The, the form um, is such a crucial component to how well someone can throw the disc. Um, you know, you see somebody like the, the uh, one of the top women's golfers out there, uh, Paige Pierce, mm-hmm. is not a, a strikingly um, big or strong uh, woman, but mm-hmm. she has picture perfect form. She turns her body into the ultimate snapping machine and she can throw further than most guys out there. Um, even, even guys who are playing at the professional level. So yes, yeah, size and strength is only a very small part of how well you can throw the disc. That said, over the last five or 10 years, I would say as, especially on the men's side, as the sport has become more competitive, a certain body type has start, started to emerge at the very top levels of the sport, which I think please, is a- Please tell me uh, it's round. There's a lot of round in it. There's hope for uh, me. In the master's division, I think that body shape is, uh, <laughs> is pretty well established. So you're, you're, you're in luck there. But yeah. uh, you know, for these young guys, um, you know, 20, 25 years old, this very tall, lanky 
body type has come to the fore. You think of somebody like Eagle McMahon or the youngster Gannon Burr, who did really well a couple yeah. weeks at Las Vegas. Uh, this long, lanky form that, like Page, can turn themselves into a whip, you know, a, a disc whipping machine, but they have a longer whip to create more snap. And it's, it's generating unbelievable distances uh, with some of these top players. It's, it's so cool. So let's talk uh, as we come forward. Um, so many things I want to dive into, but let's do this. So, um, you know, 2020, March of 2020, all of us globally, all of us were told, hey, um, stay home. If at all possible, stay home. I mean, I mean, uh, said on the show a number of times, we we're washing our dishes, our dishes, our yes, our dishes, but our groceries when we brought them back, like we just didn't know. We, you know, we we did not know what the world is going to be like, and so we were all um, we stayed home. We stayed um, distant. We we waited to see how the pandemic was going to play out. What was going on? Uh, we're trying to figure things out. But by that summer, people are like, "Look, I yes, I need to maintain good social distance, but I I human beings are meant to move. We're meant to be out of doors. We're meant at least some part of our life, and for the majority of us." What was the impact of the pandemic on um, disc golf? The impact was unbelievable. And I don't, I still don't think that we quite understand what the, the total impact on our sport is going to be in the long run, because we are still seeing the reverberations of, of this influx of new players and new interests that took place, um, you know, in 2020, mm-hmm. you know, my story, um, I, I was hired at the PDGA uh, in January of 2020. And this was the culmination of a long uh, pursuit of, uh, of a career in the disc golf industry for me. Right. Um, you know, I've had a couple of different career paths through my adult life. And this was this felt like a coming home. Uh, it right. was a real, real uh, breakthrough for me personally and a wonderful opportunity. And then not more than two months later, after I was hired, they canceled the entire slate of events. Everything was shut down. They suspended sanctioning. They told people to stay home. Don't go play disc golf. All bets are off. Um, and not long after that, I was, um, uh, you know, I was furloughed. Furloughed. Thank you. Right. Yeah, I was furloughed uh, from the PDGA. And it was, you know, it was such a disappointment um, for me. And, you know, and so I was right there with everybody else not knowing what the future was going to look like, what they were going to do with their lives. And then slowly but surely, as you described, we realized that, you know what, this, this new environment that we're in, where we can't, we can't gather in large crowds, we can't gather in indoor spaces, actually lent itself really well to the sport. Um, you can always go out and play disc golf with a group of friends, but you can go out and play disc golf all by yourself or just with your family. Um, the courses, uh, which had been spreading, uh, for the past 10 or 15 years to pretty much all areas of the U S and all around the world as well. People discovered that they had these little sanctuaries right in their backyard that they could go out to, to the park in the woods. Um, and they could, like you said, maintain that social distancing, but still, um, have, have a pursuit, have a purpose, um, uh, to go out and try to improve their game, try to try to throw a little bit further, try to score a little bit better, see their progress. It just kind of it was a it was a lifeline for a lot of people. Um, and so before long, I was called back to work. 
we opened up sanctioning and it was at that point we really started to see the numbers and basically every every area that we could measure were exploding um, and by you know June or July of, of 2020. What I'm curious about is I love your opinion on this. Look, I, I see people, I talked about mountain biking before. Um, and I thought, wow, that's really cool. And I go watch it, but I didn't run out and get a mountain bike. I don't know what the conversion rate to do that is, or, you know, fill in the blank. There's so many things you see people doing. They're out of doors. They, they satisfy sort of that, um, that, that sniff test of how do I get active? How do I move? How do I, um, you know, how can I do something safely and, and et cetera, but to convert people into that accidentally like there wasn't a how do we convert the world over to falling in love with this it was it was almost in spite of itself um that people just said hey there's something about this people who don't know they're gonna laugh at us matt you know that right like there's nothing magical about it is go get a disc go out to your local course because there's one near you Look at the joy of the people out there, even when they're not successful playing and the and families and friends and community groups and in every way that you can organize human beings, that human beings organize themselves by meetups or whatever, they're out there. I also have a love relationship with this around board games, but I introduce people to board gaming all the time. I have hundreds of board games in my house. I'm a big board gamer. I also do D and D I convert very few people that aren't a particular mindset into gaming. I have a high, um, addiction rate to people that I introduce to disc golf, not necessarily to compete in the way that we're talking about either at the professional level or even in local tournaments but just to, to get some discs and go to the local sporting goods store and pick up some entry level discs and just go and walk and chit chat and throw and enjoy the time. What do you think the magic is that people so many convert over once they've been exposed to it? Well, I, I think it's, you know, I think it's partially the accessibility, um, the rules of disc golf. And, and we do have, we have a very long rule book with all sorts of obscure if, ands or buts, but at its basis, the, the sport is very simple. You start at, at point A, you take your Frisbee, you take your disc, and you throw it till you get to point B, and you are done. Mm -hmm. And um, most of the overwhelming uh, number of courses are free to play. Like you said, they're right in your backyard. And to, to pick up uh, one or two discs is, you know, a $10, $15, $20 investment. So overall, the, the barrier to entry is so low. And then you get out there and, you know, you combine just a, a love of being outdoors. Um, and even people who don't consider themselves outdoor enthusiasts, you know, I think once they find themselves outside with, with an activity to enjoy, really can't help but just, just um, savor that experience. So you, you get that combination of accessibility, a reason to be outside, um, and then just the, the, the joy of, of seeing that thing fly and, and, the experience of improving a little bit and getting better control of the flight and starting to create lines and, and the creative element of it. It's just really engaging. Um, I think that, you know, that's all thanks to the sport itself. It's nothing to do with any marketing initiative or any strategy that anybody has put forward in the disc golf industry. It, the sport itself is just a really wonderful activity 
Um, and the pandemic provided an opportunity for so many people to discover it. And I find the community, um, at least the communities that I'm around, um, charming, friendly and charming. I'm sure if you're, you know, like all communities, you get people together, there are uh, um, opportunities of which we sometimes take uh, part of to be um, uh, unfriendly, but that's rare in my experience, very rare. Certainly just regular people out there playing and learning to enjoy it, so approachable. Um, you mentioned something that I don't, I don't know that we teased out a little bit. When we were talking about the discs before, we talked about the differences between, say, a Frisbee and a and a disc, and then you, know, you can use discs to shape shots, and they have different um, applications. When I buy a disc, um, in fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna grab one right here. This happens to be up on my shelf next to my uh, little disc golf basket. There, this is an old Innova Rock. Can you see it on the uh, deal? And on here, it is a classic. Um, so here's. Besides the logo, and not all discs have this exactly, but they all, I think, have this sort of idea behind them. There are numbers on this. So if I'm not familiar with what this is, probably similar to if I get a golf club, I can see physical differences, the length of the shaft, the shape of the head on the club, et cetera. I may not know why that number is this or that or the, or the material, if, if you're not familiar with these, I've got other discs up there on the shelf. One from the uh, championship uh, last year that was up in um, Rock Hill. Um, and then my PDGA membership disc, my second one. So I'm, I'm renewed Good for uh, till 2023. Good man. Uh, um, my wife wants to join just so she can get, I got the, uh, what is that? This, the octopus. Um, and then I have my other one uh, last year with the turtle. But anyway, this has some numbers on it. So it says a four, a four, a zero, and a one. And this is a mid-range. It's got, um, uh, you know, the rim around it is of a certain, it, I don't want to, the people who aren't, who are listening to this, not watching it, I don't want to bore them and go into too much detail, but what do those numbers mean and why do I care? Um, the numbers are a guide that are particularly useful for more experienced players who are looking for kind of nuances between discs. Um, but the first number, well, let me tell you what the four numbers mean, and okay. we won't get we won't get too deep into it. Okay. Um, the four numbers in order refer to the speed, the glide, the turn, and the fade. Okay. All right. So really, the most important number on there, in my opinion, is the first number, the speed. Yeah. That's really equivalent to the club type in golf. So you're looking at the difference between a putter, uh, of an iron, and uh, a wood. Mm -hmm. um, it's the difference maybe between between our slower speed discs and our faster speed discs. Um, newer players should always begin with slower speed discs because they are more similar to a Frisbee. They fly similar to a Frisbee. They're easier to control. They're easier to make fly. Now, when you say speed, do you mean how fast they go? What does speed mean? Speed, um, there's actually, there's a little bit of uncertainty about exactly what this means. It, it, it can refer to, the way I think about it is it refers to the aerodynamic properties of the disc. Okay. Um, so a, a thinner disc with a sharper edge is going to be a higher speed because it will travel through the air faster and it doesn't meet as much air resistance. A slower speed disc is similar to a Frisbee with a real wide rim um, that may float pretty well, but it's not going to cut through the air at the same speed. 
Um, another way to look at it, some people look at it this way, is the speed is the speed necessary to throw the disc the way it's meant to fly. So if you if you don't have a very fast arm, if you're just a beginner and you try to throw a very high speed disc, you're not going to be able to throw it fast enough to make the disc fly in its proper pattern. Mm. Yeah, I've uh, one of the best pieces of advice I got was last fall after eight months of playing um, a friend, um, a guy just playing with me. Uh, first did this, which I thought was really cool. He said, hey, um, uh, I don't want to insult you. If you'd like some advice, I got some tips that helped me. Would you like that? Or we can just keep playing and uh, listen to music. And I said, no, man, lay it on me. Just be kind. And he gave me two pieces of advice that really helped me. He said, one, don't throw a disc. That, get rid of every disc in your bag that are faster than a six. Too, too much for you. You cannot do that. I was brokenhearted because my Valkyrie had to come out. My beast mm. had to come out. My Because every now and then, you know how this works, Matt. Every now and then you throw it accidentally, just the right form at just the right speed. And it does magic. Um, but that's a rare event for a um, unskilled amateur like myself. So the second thing that they said to do was slow down slow down meaning not necessarily how i'm snapping my arm but how i'm how i'm moving through my form because i'm too many things are um loose and inaccurate because i just uh not just am i new to the sport but i am uh i'm not out there for hours at a time in a field or in a practice tee or whatever i just sort of show up on the weekend and i play so he he told me to do those two things i thought he was nuts but i did it immediately i so what that means for me is uh my only driver really was the leopard which is a speed six and then um my buzz was kind of my go-to buzz ss was my go-to mid-range uh so a, you know a little bit shorter distance and then my um my putters and i got a couple little other things in there but that was basically it miracle of miracles i stopped throwing it straight up in the air i stopped curving it 30 yards into the woods to my left or to my right. Just so many things began when I slowed down my movements, one, and two, um, started throwing discs that were more appropriate. My ego got out of the way to my skill set and my form. And it just became even more enjoyable. And now I'm starting to disc back up because that six speed disc, I'm throwing it too hard. And so it it's way too straight. I've got to throw something a little bit higher speed, a seven or eight with a little bit more um, turn on it, a little bit more uh, stability so that um, it will go straighter longer before it um, starts to curve for me. Does that sound pretty consistent with most people's journey? I think, I think you got some pretty good advice there. Um, and I'm not surprised to hear that it really works because yeah, when people slow down, they're able to work on their form and their timing, um, which is just so important uh, to having to, to having a good throw. You know, um, I, I grew up as a, as a, as a tennis player and, um, you know, it was really enforced to me by my teachers that you need to have good weight transfer into your shot. You know, the, the power for your shot doesn't come from your hand. It doesn't come from your arm. It really comes all the way from your feet and your lower body into your into your arm when you mm -hmm. when you make that shot and so 
if your form isn't good, you're going to lose that energy transfer somewhere in that chain. You need to make sure that every part of your swing is nice and smooth and you're transferring that power from the ground up through your body and into your shot. And that takes, it takes time to develop that. It takes time to develop that timing. So starting slow and starting with discs that don't require a lot of speed to control, it's, it's pretty much the, the best advice you can give to a beginner. Yeah, it's, um, and to your point, that was the other thing that he said, the most important thing to you right now, as you're learning, it's not that glide or um, turn or fade aren't important. It's just that it's not relevant to you right now. Just learn, just figure out how to go straight a certain distance. Um, one of the things that's um, intimidating, I see these people come out and they're playing and I've considered joining some of our local tournaments. They look like a lot of fun. Uh, people are enjoying them. And I thought, well, I'll just play in this, you know, the 50 plus year old, those guys are deadly. They throw nowhere near as far as the younger kids, generally speaking, they're so accurate <laughs> and they just stay in their swim lane. It's like, uh, do you ever see the movie hitch? Um, oh, come on, Matt. You need to go back and see hitch. It's a great, uh, great movie. But anyway, he teaches them to dance like this, just kind of stay. This is you, this is your little box right here. This is you. And when I see these guys um, and gals for that matter, in that demographic, just stay in this box. Don't try to overpower it, how accurate they are, how fun they are, how, and, and by that form, by good form and slowing it down, how much um, better they play. It's uh, it's really pretty remarkable. It is, you know, that's really, I think what catches people's imagination is being able to control the disc in flight, being able yeah. to, um, uh, see the direction you want to throw the disc and then execute that. And so even if you would, even if you don't have big distance goals at first, you keep things simple, you throw it short, throw it straight, just being able to execute that, that short, simple shot and throw it in the direction you want to throw it is such a joyful feeling that I think is really all people need to, to get hooked and get the bug. Right. So people don't just think that we're talking about this amazing amateur sport. Um, in the last couple of years, some of the things that have been really capturing people's attention is at the pro level, a few things for me anyway. One, the explosion internationally. It's not just here in the States, you know, at the amateur level, it's exploded everywhere in the world. Um, but the notice that the uh, professional sport media market has taken of the sport and um, almost like um, I'm sure you're familiar with esports and um, gaming. Uh, probably um, there were there were a couple even as as um, early as the late '90s, early 2000s. Some of those gamers, whether it was with Counter Strike back then or Unreal Tournament and these other things, they began winning Ferraris as part of their package. They began winning like people were. It was a very very few people, but you could make in 2002, $200,000, if you were the best video gamer there was in a particular marketplace. Well, 2019, I want to say it's the last number. And I think that's when I'm thinking of these numbers. I haven't seen the new numbers. But if you looked at the top 100 esport teams in the world, they split amongst them, if I'm getting this right, um, $86 million in earning, earnings. Um, and those teams tended to be three to five people. Those, 
those kids, I'm sure the ones at the top had a much higher, but, but the average was in the two to $3 million range per person. Um, sometimes they got that at a tournament. Like I think it was uh, League of Legends, the League of Legends winning team, five people split a $15 million pot. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It's crazy. It's hard for people outside of that to comprehend that. But when you look at things like Twitch and uh, Microsoft Gaming, all these platforms where they stream it and they sell their merch and they're part of it, like it's big international business. When I look at disc golf and I look at the explosion of disc golf, not just at the amateur level, just this winter off season, uh, Ricky Wysocki, one of the best players in the world, lands his $4 million um, uh, so a million dollars a year for four year contract before that Paul Macbeth, uh, $10 million over 10 years. And there's so many other stories, female side, male side, where people all of a sudden are like, wait, what up to this point? All right. So it's a good time. You get out there with your friends and it's kind of a social club. That sounds cool. Wait, wait, wait. And, and, um, the people that I was naming th those uh, folks are somewhere in their later 20s to uh, early 30s. They've been playing for a long time. They weren't accidentally awarded this. They've become very serious about how they play the sport and all the other things. But in this tournament that we just watched, one of the competitors was a 16-year-old kid who's been playing for four years. And except for an unfortunate uh, bad beat at the end, playing another journeyman player uh, or journeyman player, Drew Gibson, who a very likable person. A lot of people know him from on tour, but this is one of his biggest wins for sure. And it was certainly one of the most exciting things. All of a sudden people are paying attention. Um, this is real money and big um, media groups are looking at picking up or already picking up the sport to talk, talk about it and to um, show it on their platforms. Can you talk a little bit about that evolution at the pro level? Well, it is, it is really the, the sort of top line headline. Um, when some, when you, when I'm trying to convince somebody of the um, you know, that, that the sport is going mainstream, um, that it has legitimacy and is, uh, is a real organized sport. The first thing I go to are these big contract numbers because mm -hmm. they're, you know, just so impressive when you tell them that Paul Macbeth got a 10 year, $10 million deal, then you've got their attention. Um, you know, what's surprising a little bit about the way that players are getting compensated in, in disc golf is it's, it's not following a very traditional model, although we're heading there a little bit. Um, and when I say that, I'm, um, I mean, the, the payout prizes at the end of these big events is not what you'd expect them to be um, from a major mainstream sport. You know, for instance, we're talking about first place, first place prizes of, 10, 15, 20, sometimes $30,000 at the top end, mm -hmm. which, you know, for, um, you know, for a, a, a semi-pro disc golfer on the road is a ton of money. But when we're talking about mainstream sports is really, you know, you get basketball players get fined $30,000, you know, for right. not showing up to the press conference or something like that. It's really right. dropping the bucket where our players are really making their money is in sponsorship deals um, to a degree that we just don't see actually in, in most other sports. There was a, a really interesting article that came out shortly after Paul Macbeth signed his 10 year, $10 million deal called the rise of the 10, uh, the, the rise of the, uh, what is it called? Uh, rise of the million dollar disc golf celebrity. And one of the, one of the standout points that this article made was 
uh, as of 2019, there were only 70, 70, 70 athletes in any sport worldwide that had endorsement deals valued at $1 million or more per year. So we had one out of 70, and now we have two out of 70, which is a uh, very disproportionate representation considering how small and how new disc golf is. Um, so that's really encouraging. And, and that's a testament to the way the sport markets itself. A testament to the way that the, the disc golfers themselves market themselves through social media. Um, you know, it's, it's a model really that is pretty unique in the sporting world. And I think it, it's, um, it owes a lot to the fact that, again, we're talking about the timing of when disc golf came to the mainstream is this era of social media, this era of user generated content on platforms like, uh, like YouTube. And it's phenomenal. I'm going to go there in a second, but when you were talking about that, one of my favorite sports, um, that I've watched, I don't know, since before I was a teenager, is uh, dirt bike racing, outdoor motocross and indoor supercross. <clears throat> My dad's taken me when I was a little kid to the, the big events in California and on the coast at the big uh, national events. And then, um, you know, the, the, the elite dirt bike racers make hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. And so both internationally and locally, the purse at that local event is very small, relatively speaking. You've got, um, you know, whatever the number of people that are trying to qualify for the race, let's say it's somewhere between 40 to 60 uh, people. And there's a bunch of layers you have to go through just to be skilled enough to even compete at some of these things because they are so dangerous. And so, you know, there's a, it's a difficult thing to get to, but once you get there and you race, um, it, for everybody, but the highest factory teams, you're essentially racing for gas money or maybe a little bit more than that with the hopes that you get picked up by one of these big teams. And then you're making several hundred thousand dollars a year up to multi-million, you know, five, six, $8 million a year. I mean, it's, it, there's good money for a very small group of people. And this is a sport that's been around for 40 years, um, where, 80,000 people show up or 50,000 people show up at a stadium or 25,000 at a big field on the weekend or in the summertime. And the purses are still teeny tiny. Even if it was the same in disc golf, the difference is there are not a lot of disc golfers that are breaking their backs. There are not a lot of disc golfers that are, you know, some percentage of the pro racers every year are breaking multiple bones, life-threatening injuries, contusions, concussions, not to mention all the things they have to do just to become 16, 18, 20 year old people and the barrier to entry with very expensive motorcycles and all, you know, in the enclosed courses, like I look at that and I look over here at disc golf to your point, we're talking about the most extreme examples of these multi-million dollar contracts, but there's, I don't know how many, I'm not even going to guess, but a, a number that are in the $200,000 a year. Um, but with all inclusive, their merch, their sponsorships, their salary, whatever, and up somewhere between 200 grand and a million dollars a year. That's not a bad living with this emerging sport that really probably in the last, the, the turbo has been the last two years, but really probably 2018, it feels like it started on this upswing and then just exploded, um, when the spark hit the, hit the fuel, but there, and women, you know, there are significant women contracts that were signed in this off season. Um, 
millionaires are being made as these folks are learning how to play. They're applying themselves in social media to your point. Um, it's absolutely phenomenal. It is. Um, and it has a, uh, it has a cyclical effect where we, like you said, you know, parents of children who are looking at options for their kids um, to pursue athletics see now they have these role models of these very successful top level disc golfers who are, who are becoming millionaires. So they have something to aspire to. And yet the sport maintains that accessibility that anybody can go out, play for, you know, the cost of a couple of discs, no green fees um, and start to learn and see if they have that natural ability. So yeah, the risk and the, the barrier to entry is so low. And the upside is becoming so high that um, it is really helping us to, you know, recruit the next generation of disc golfers. So tell me about the pro tour. What is the, you're with the sanctioning body. What does this look like when are they playing every weekend? Is it every other weekend? How does it, um, how has it evolved into what it is today? And I'm sure like all leagues um, you go through iterations of development, but what does a tournament look like? And is it more like, um, you know, in dirt bike racing or NASCAR or something like that, all the racers go to all of the events, assuming they have budget and they're not hurt. Or is it more like tennis where if you're in, you know, if you're in this, the top 30 or the top 50 of a tennis player, you've got to hit the majors. But from there, you just have to attend a certain number of events and the events are all over the world. So how does the sanctioning body and the pro tour work? Well, the, the pro tour um, began, I believe the first year was 2016. Um, and it was a development from uh, a, a previous tour model that was actually run by the sanctioning body, was run by the PDGA called, we call it the national tour. Okay. The national tour started as a sort of loose conglomerate of events um, that was created in an effort to give some of the best players a sort of route to follow um, as the season went along. Um, they kind of tied together the biggest events to make sure that the best players could be seen at all of these big events and would have maybe an, a way to cobble enough money together to keep themselves on the road for a season. Mm -hmm. um, that was really the initial idea. And then as you know, the purses grew and the financial incentives grew, um, the Disc Golf Pro Tour founded in 2016 um, was the first for-profit private enterprise to, to attempt to put together a pro tour. They really followed the model of the PDGA's national tour. It was you know, they went out and got contracts with some of the bigger events to kind of uh, piece together uh, a trail that the, that the top pros could follow along. It certainly was not every week. Mm -hmm. um, it, it wasn't even every other week. I believe the first uh, Disc Golf Pro Tour season probably had eight, maybe uh, probably about eight or nine events. Mm -hmm. um, but that's developed over the last five, six years. And it's gotten to the point now where the Disc Golf Pro Tour um, is has become officially the only pro tour, this, the recognized pro tour of the sanctioning body. We have since shut down the national tour um, and handed over this sort of elite touring level of competition to this other organization, Disc Golf Pro Tour. Mm -hmm. I believe they're up to 15 um, of their top level events this year. And then they also run a series of sort of secondary level events below that. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's approaching, I would say, every during during the meet of the season from probably May through September, it is practically every week. Um, even now, we're having events every other week um, mm -hmm. during the spring season. So I think they have 15 events uh, for the Pro Tour, and then we combine that with now four PDGA majors 
Uh, so between the majors and the pro tour, there are 19 sort of marquee events that the best uh, disc golfers will almost certainly hit this year. Well, you went right where I was hoping we could go, which is, um, you know, in tennis, which I'm very familiar with. Um, not as a player, evidently, there's a weight limit and a skill requirement <laughs> needed, but whatever. But, um, you know, you've got Wimbledon, you've got the Australian Open, you've got the French Open and uh, the U.S. Open. And they're very different services and they're very different environments. And it's so exciting and really until freaking Djokovic began breaking it for everybody. You know, Nadal owned um, the clay and he usually won at the others. Before that, of course, Federer. And you can go back in history, uh, you know, Sampras and um, you know, just some Michael Chang who had dominated in this area and Agassi, of course. Oh, oh Connors. And I just think of these greats. Um, what are the majors and how do you determine if something is a major at the pro level? Like what is it? Is it something unique about the course? Is it a part of the country? What makes it a major? Or is it just tradition? What makes it a major? Um, it's, it's a little bit of everything there. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, what makes an event a major is that it is sanctioned, uh, sanctioned as and designated as a major by the governing body, the, the PDGA. So Ultimately, at the end of the day, we, you know, what we say counts as a major mm -hmm. is what is a major. And of course, you know, having a major label label carries amount of, a certain amount of prestige for the players. And mm -hmm. so, you know, like like in tennis, we're watching Federer and Nadal and Djokovic, you know, have this, you know, the goat race trying to rack right. up as many major uh, championships as possible. The same thing happens in disc golf. You know, players want that that number uh, of total majors in their career. To, to set their set their place in history and compare themselves to, to past greats. Um, so yes, and th there's also you know some other um, uh, event guidelines that are you know establish what counts as a major. There's a certain amount of cash that has to be added. Um, there are you know certain guidelines as to the number of courses that can be used and the the caliber of the courses that have to be used. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's really a way to set off. The most important tournaments and and when we make that distinction that these are the majors these are the ones that are the most important it adds pressure to the players um it adds that gravitas just knowing that these are the ones that are going to count in the history books as having that m next to your name after you win them um i completely agree it's um i have the most enjoyment if you told me two years ago i was going to sit around with my beautiful bride of 35 years as interested as I am on the couch watching people throw frisbees, you know, I would have accused you of being one of these. Um, uh, never mind, I'm just going to keep it clean. But, you know, I would not have believed you. Let's just leave it at that. Um, however, one of the things that cemented it for us for sure was watching Worlds last year. We're watching, we watched some of it live. We watched some of it uh, on the, you know, post-production, one of the big post-production companies. I think to us, we thought it was live. We didn't even know it wasn't live, <laughs> but it was, it was nearly live, and, but we had no clue, followed no social media. We had no clue the outcome. It's the, you know, Paul Macbeth, one of, if not the greatest of all time, I get reluctant to say greatest of all time of any era. I would just say in his era, if he's not the greatest, he is certainly one of the top two or three. Um, but uh, give credit where credit is due. Such an innovator. And Paul wouldn't be there without uh, 
Ken Climo before him and on and on and on the people that just influenced and, and he's uh, very respectful of the history of the sport. Sure. We're watching James Conrad um, do the miracle shot. We think it's live. We're screaming and yelling. We're texting people only to find out, yeah, that it already happened, but we were so, you know, celebratory of it. Um, but one of the things that we've noticed as we've watched these events over the course of the year, and we're starting to watch them again, is that not all courses are created equal. And I don't mean necessarily the difficulty. I mean, here's a tournament um, where it's a public park and people are wandering in while, you know, you're watching and others, it's very exclusive and it's very, you know, it's, it's set aside. It's very difficult to uh, get to. Some can accommodate very large crowds in galleries um, and others, it's very limited. We have an event um, in Georgia um, that is, um, it's a beautiful course. It's a very complicated uh, course for people to play at, um, but they have to be much stricter with the number of tickets they issue because it just cannot accommodate the galleries that want to show up. They can accommodate, accommodate the galleries from three years ago, but they cannot accommodate everybody who wants a ticket today. But other courses can. They can absolutely accommodate that. How, as you're from with your sanctioning body hat on, and as just as an enthusiast and a player, how do you imagine courses of the future? And, and before you answer it, I just want to say this one thing that it seems to me it's similar to when NASCAR grew up. Um, I discovered NASCAR in particular 17 years ago when I moved to Georgia. And they had all these tracks that helped build the sport not just the famous ones of Daytona and Talladega and um, many of the others, but there's equal, if not more, probably even more 20 something tracks that are really small. that could handle 50,000 or 80,000 people. And they're in the uh, out of the way part of Virginia or South Carolina or whatever. And they didn't lend themselves to the television or to getting these massive crowds that wanted to show up as opposed to one in a big metropolitan area. And, and it's been a thing that they've had to navigate and with some success and some not success, you know, as they, as they try to figure out, they don't want to lose their base, the people that have been there that want it to feel authentic, but, but it, that's, that's just pressure that you've got to work through. So as you imagine that going forward with courses and be able to accommodate the people that want to show up with the ability to televise them or broadcast them, at least in a streaming media how do you work through that? And, and who's involved in that conversation besides just those of you in the, um, in the organization? Uh, it's a great question. You know, I think that's one of the, one of the most attractive parts of the sport um, is the difference between one course to another. Uh, it can make such a difference um, in the way the game is played um, in what skill sets will, will set a competitor apart. You know, we, we start our, our season out West where there's these big open courses that really favor players who can throw a long way, but then we move to the East coast with these tightly wooded technical courses that really favor uh, somebody who has good uh, mental game, good course management, excellent putting. Um, and, you know, it's really, I think the, I think the, the equivalent is, is tennis with these different surfaces that, mm -hmm. that favor certain skill sets. Um, but as you were saying, different, different types of courses present different challenges in covering them and showing the viewer at home, what is happening and, and getting them to appreciate what they're seeing on the screen. Um, open courses, especially courses on um, established ball golf courses um, that you'll see a lot of disc golf events take place at 
are by far the easiest to cover. Um, mm -hmm. The camera angles are easy. You can put, you can position your camera nearly anywhere. You can capture the entire shape and uh, uh, the shape of the flight. You can fit big crowds on there um, and, and put the crowds pretty much anywhere you want to. And you know, um, you know, from watching racing or any other sport, I really feel like you know having uh, having a large, engaged, uh, you know, rowdy crowd can make such a big difference yeah. in the way the sport comes across on the screen. You need that energy. You need that crowd. They're communicating how much they care about what they're seeing so that the viewer at home, you know, also cares about what they're seeing. So um, those big open courses that are easy to film and allow for big crowds are, are really um, attractive from the media perspective. But from a purely, you know, a disc golf perspective, a lot of people, you know, fall in love with the sport playing in the woods, playing through the trees and hitting these beautiful, you know, being forced to hit these beautiful technical shaped shots. Um, and so I think, you know, disc golf is, is we really have a, we have a, a decision to make. Do we fall back on what's easy to put on TV or do we, you know, do we try to innovate to find new ways of, of showing these discs flying through the woods and communicating what these fairways look like and what needs to happen. And, and did the player execute what they were trying to do? Um, you know, building infrastructure to allow larger crowds to come out and see wooded golf is a big challenge. Um, but I think, you know, going back to the world's, uh, the world championships from last year, yeah. I think they did an excellent job with that because that, that last round took place at a course called the fort which is a very heavily wooded course. So, you know, 16 of those 18 holes is dense wooded disc golf, but they had the foresight to build this really beautiful uh, finishing hole with, um, you know, these, the bleacher gallery seating surrounding it felt like you were in a stadium. Um, it was open, it was easy to film. And, and that, you know, that combination of having the technical wooded golf and then finishing with this big gallery in this open space was just such a great formula that, you know, because of the way that that tournament finished, it couldn't have been any better for us. So I think that's really, that's the model for the future is um, combining all of the best elements, um, using intentional design and, and investing resources to make sure that we have um, the infrastructure to accommodate these big crowds that give live sports the energy that it needs. You guys should partner with the Renaissance festivals around the country. And let me tell you why I say that. Um, my, my producer is probably rolling his eyes right now. Like, Oh, here we go. I'm telling you, I don't even know for how long, like this cements. I'm super nerd. I'm dungeon master, dirt bike, uh, board gamer, disc golfer, and now Ren fest. I'm not allowed to cosplay at Ren fest anymore. Evidently it's traumatizing for children, but it's a story for another day. But they can accommodate thousands of people in parking. Um, when you're wandering through, at least here in Georgia and the ones I've been to in Tennessee and in Texas, um, you know, you're wandering through wooded areas where they've got all of the stuff set up and it just feels like you're walking through pretty good size area. And yet they can accommodate not everybody in the same spot, but you can uh, not unlike ball golf or many other things, you know, you choose where you want to sit or um, whatever. They've also got these really cool, um, in many cases that they've developed over years, the ability to walk from one area to the other, where you can sort of walk outside of the village, you can, you can get around it. So it doesn't impact the people wandering through the jousting area or all the other things. And I'm hoping that 
the things that attracted me to this sport was the, how elegant it is. The sound, the sound of you literally launch that disc off the tee with all the power you've ever had. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It goes 12 feet, hits a tree, cracks, rolls to the side, uh, or when it, it shapes perfectly and twists and turns. And for people who haven't experienced this until they go do it and they see it, it's so remarkable. And so many of the organizations that you work with, whether you guys do it directly or the, the people that work with you to produce these things, um, there's a number of them. They, they have got, they're getting so good at capturing through technology, the sound, the, the disappointment, the, um, the, the way that the, the shots track, but it's not just sitting there watching people throw Frisbees. Like you get the form, you get it from all different kinds of angles. They've got the ability to put the, the flight tracker so that you can see, they put the information on there that if you're not familiar with it, it's not an overload. You just don't want to pay attention to it. And the commentary, there's so many great commentary people personalities um on there some of them who are actually playing in the tournament but they get but they allow uh through the miracle of technology to also comment at the same time um or in post-production it's really pretty amazing so you get to experience all of that and it would be a shame if back to my nascar analogy one of the big criticisms fair or unfair is these tracks look cookie cutter now you know the thing from uh, South Boston, which was in Virginia, not in uh, Boston, Mass. But you know the the grit, the griminess of the asphalt they use, the 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 tightness of all the fans in there, and just that experience—you almost could feel the asphalt and the heat coming off of it. Well, it went away, and I'm not picking on them. I'm saying it's wrong. I'm just saying that the, it, as it evolved, because the track up in Kentucky that looks like the one in Kansas, like in Texas or in Atlanta or all these other places we can pack people in and it's easy to show it's easy um, to experience whatever, but it, but it changes something good or bad. It changes something about that experience. And I don't want them to lose not just the worlds, but there's so many, what is it? Maple Hill up in uh, Massachusetts, another great, highly technical, very nostalgic, so much love. And they can accommodate because they've been working on this for so long, large galleries of people that um, I'm curious to see what that journey looks like. Like, how do we do um, the, both of these? One of the criticisms I heard about the ball golf, and I don't know that it's entirely fair, but you know, this this course is just for the the big throwers. Not entirely true. You still have to be accurate. You they get creative in how they do rollers and all these other things. But you can accommodate a lot of people in person. You can accommodate all the technology to capture it. And so it seems like, gosh, if we do it over here, we're criticized. If we keep it true and natural over here, we're criticized. I'm just curious to see, and I don't know, I'm not suggesting that you have the answer today, but how do we capture the spirit of this thing and make it accessible for those who want to attend um, and for those who want to watch? It, it seems like it's a pretty daunting task. It is. Um, you know, I, I'm glad you, you mentioned the flight tracker because I think that's one of the more important breakthroughs we've had, you know, in, in our sport in the last 10 years was just the ability to see the shape of the flight. Because once the disc leaves the player's hand on video, you know, oftentimes it's hard to keep track of it. So if you put that that line that traces the, the path of the flight, you can really start to understand the shape of it. You know, I see those sort of those sort of developments are going to be so key for us keeping the original spirit of the game of being in the woods oftentimes 
one of the problems we run into now is when you're trying to film um, a disc golf hole that's in the woods, you get that camera behind the tee. And even though, you know, if you're there in person, you may easily be able to see the shape of that fairway and the way that the gap flows through the trees on camera. Oftentimes it just looks like you're staring at a wall of trees, right? You know, and that's not entertaining. It's not fun to watch somebody throw at a wall of trees and hope that they get through. So being able to communicate that to the viewer of what is the shape of this fairway, what will a good shot look like? And then understanding if we saw that, you know, the athlete execute the shot properly, um, that's going to be very technology dependent. We know we we use drones now to give previews of the holes, uh, which has been a real good breakthrough for helping to understand the shape of the hole. You know, I, in the future, I see, um, you know, digital modeling of these holes being shown live during broadcasts so that we can actually fly through the holes with the disc and, and, and really feel the shape of that flight uh, would be a great way to, to kind of communicate that, that experience to the viewer. Yeah, you see that in so many sports now. Um, for me, one of the cool things that drones brought, um, I've mentioned dirt bike racing. Last year, they had a lot of drone coverage of them out following the racers as they raced the track on paper i was like well, what's the big deal i don't know you know i i've been going to the races when i was a kid I, in fact i need to get a t-shirt that says the older i get the faster i was um i've raced those tracks I, just as a as a enthusiast not as a um not as a uh, pro by any stretch of the imagination um, but when there's, there's something, when you're able to experience or get some sense of the experience, almost like the in-car camera in a formula one or NASCAR, or whatever, where you're, you're coming into the turn three inches away from another car, you know, people say with NASCAR racing in particular, but all of them, you know, you're just making left turns or right turns and you're doing 205 miles an hour, three wide, four inches apart hours at a time this is it's an unbelievable experience when they put that drone out there in dirt bike racing and you can see the ruts and you can see the the um you know the effort required and the compression and all of this stuff and how fast they're going and in uh the sport that we're talking about today disc golf when you see the flight of how narrow that gap was and you think well they just got lucky but they do it again and again, and to see a Wysocki and a Macbeth and a Dickerson and a um, Gibson and a Uliberry or a, like just they're nailing these things and they're just inches apart when they miss. And yet it's a it's a disaster. Like it's it's really cool. And I can't wait to see how the technology is going to continue to evolve whatever their version of the in-car camera is or watching the drivers work the foot pedals or where you can bring more of the experience to uh to the people that want to um enjoy it and just really um you know really participate in it absolutely that, that's our goal i mean we want to ultimately we want to put the viewer you know in in the in the perspective of the player who's actually out there and can feel the challenge can see what they need to do and and has that you know have that joy of of executing the shot that they meant to throw um if we can get the viewer to experience all of that and understand that, then you know, we've, we've done our job, but it's, it's no easy task in disc golf. You know, the, the way the sport is laid out over a course of 18 holes over a, you know, a, a large course presents a lot of challenges to covering um, that, you know, I know golf uh, has had to, has had to deal with, um, you know, with maybe your top players are spread out over the course doing 
important things all at the very same time. So the mm-hmm. logistics of getting all those cameras out um, and running a production that kind of gives the viewer an understanding of what's happening on the course, not just from one pers- one player's perspective, but um, all over the course, all at once has been a real production challenge and, and something that we've gotten better at over the last couple of years. And I think has really contributed to improved engagement from the viewers and, and, and just growth in the viewership in general. Yeah. The post-production is so beautiful. I can't, even the live, we subscribe to the uh, live stream as well. It's so, um, it's remarkable, especially when you see it live and then the next day, in many instances, you're able to see a, a post-production version of that, how much editing had to happen between the live and all the, I was like, wait a minute, it doesn't just take six minutes a whole to, to get this done. It's actually, you've got to walk, you got to wait for the next group. You've got to tell the crowd to be quiet, like all of those other things. It's, um, it's really, it's really pretty remarkable. I can't tell if I like live better than post-production. I think it just depends on what's going on in my life, but I love them both. I do have a question. I, I don't think we touched on this before. The PDGA, are, are you just North American focused or are you the sanctioning body globally? We are globally. Um, okay. So, you know, we're, we're headquartered in, in Georgia, um, right outside of Augusta, but we are the global governing body of the sport. Is, is the enthusiasm uh, internationally the same it is, as it is in North America? Sort of be, I guess would be question 1A and 1B is, are there pockets of um, of Europe or Asia or or other spots where it seems to be um, the same sort of phenomenal growth we see here, and it and it's more uh, you know it's more prevalent. Um, it's it's starting to happen. Certainly, um, you know the genesis of the sport was in California, and it's kind of grown outward from there. So, you know, for most of the sports history, it has been very uh, centered in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say since the nineties, there's been a healthy presence, especially in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over the last 20 years, especially the sport has really taken off in Europe, particularly in Finland, um, of all places, which has, as far as I understand the highest, uh, concentration of courses per capita by far of any place in the world at this point. Um, but Finland has really taken a uh, hold as a center for, for disc golf growth and the European scene in general is becoming sort of its own independent, uh, its own independent scene at this point, similar to, um, you know, where in golf, you, you have, you know, the U S tours and you have, uh, the European tours. Mm-hmm. We have a, we have a, one of our majors is the European open, uh, will take place this summer in Finland. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's an entire Euro tour, um, that's, I think uh, I want to say it's nine events this year and it's all over Europe um, have the best European players who are not making the trip this year to play in the United States. Uh, I, I have also seen them playing in Germany. seems like Germany's got a great, you know, famously because of Simon Lazar, who resides here in the U S and one of, one of the best ever um, made a name for himself as a trick shot, but, but he's as capable as any other um player out there. Um, and I've seen some of the coverage out in Europe, in uh, Germany in particular, and just remarkable players. Absolutely. We're, you know, we're starting to see a lot more coverage out of the European tour. And I think American fans, American disc golf fans are starting to become interested in what's happening in Europe because of people like Simon, we want to see who the next emerging 
European star is going to to come up and come overseas and, and really challenge uh, the best U.S. players. So there's a there's a real hunger for international parity and seeing um, seeing really competitive players come out of, of Europe and around the world. Um, you know, so this year especially, you know, this has been interesting because over the last two years, the European players haven't really had an opportunity to come to the U.S. Right. Um, they've been, you know, kind of siloed in their, in their own competitive circuit over there while all of this crazy growth in the sport has happened, um, you know, in the U S but around the world. And so this is the first year we're seeing those players come back over to the U S after having two years of development, um, you know, mostly off the radar from us. And we're really excited to see who is going to, to contend, you know, there's a real good chance, especially on the women's side that we'll see a, a European become a world champion this year, which I think everyone is very excited about that prospect. The, the women's competitive um, group, the level, the number of athletes, you know, forever it's been dominated by Paige and deservedly so. She is one of the best athletes of any sport I've ever seen. She just, she makes it look ridiculously easy. Um, and in this past year that at least the year that I followed, I've watched some of the retro stuff, but this last year <clears throat> watching uh, a number of people come up and, you know, the competition rises and rises and, and then it's cool to watch her respond uh, for her own game, you know, and before we mentioned this earlier, Paige could outdrive pretty much anybody, but maybe the elite, a few of the elite men. But other than that, she was easily, um, as distant and as accurate as anybody on that course, if not more accurate than pretty much anybody, no, no doubt about it. And now you see that group so dynamically responding um, to compete. I love that. The other thing that I like about Paige that I've seen a number of times is a lot of these athletes post on YouTube or other places, here's how you beat me. Here's how you get better. And not tongue in cheek, not like, look, this, let me give you a clinic. Let me help. Who does that? Like in the early days of poker, you know, some of the guys trying to make some money, publish some books and whatever, they don't do that anymore. They don't want you to know how to beat them anymore. <clears throat> but you just see these workshops and this skill. It's, it's such a remarkable experience. I don't have very much exposure to the um, international players that are coming over, but there's a lot of buzz that what's been, um, what's been growing they've been watching these videos of these u.s players without acrimony how i want to come and compete against my heroes and the people that are helping to teach me and for me as a fan i get to enjoy watching it all elevate it's it's so true and i'll tell you you know for personal for my personal interaction i can say nobody is hungrier for high level competition than Paige pierce yeah. she wants she wants other players to come out and challenge That's the her. Texan her. In her. Get and, you it. know, and, and I'm not, you know, she, she might be like, you know, she might be like the puppy who, who caught the mail truck. Cause I think, I think it <laughs> happened this year. You know, there are, there's a, a good solid group of like six, maybe even more women who can really challenge her this year. Right. Um, but, you know, just like in any, in any sport the, to elevate the sport, you need to have compelling competition. You need to have rivalries. I mean, nothing right. is better for sport than a good competitive rivalry you right. know federer and adal tiger and phil right. you know the, the list goes on and on you need that to really elevate a sport and so um you know i think Paige is Paige is hungry for other players to come and push her she really has that now not just from katrina allen who right. is 
um, you know, arguably the best, if not, you know, right with Paige, right. and then a handful of Europeans that are coming over. So everyone's anticipating that this really high level of competitive, uh, a competitive field in the women's game is going to elevate the sport. And you know, just one other thing while we're on the topic of the ladies, I think disc golf is, is unique and has a very unique opportunity to elevate the women's side of the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in mainstream sports, women have not gotten as much of the spotlight. And I think that in disc golf, we, we, you know, some of our most well-known players, our most well-known celebrity names in the sport are women. And that is fantastic. It's um, such a valuable thing for the sport. It sets us apart from other sports. You know, I think of tennis and, and Serena Williams and, um, you know, um, and other really high level names, that's pretty unique. And I think we have an opportunity to build that in disc golf, which is very exciting. That's a great comparison because I love watching elite level women's tennis. Um, and I love watching elite level men's tennis in particular, because it seems to come down to the mental game. They, these are very capable athletes that are, um, exceptional. And I've enjoyed it. The nineties with Steffi Groff and, um, Monica Sellis and many others all the way up until, uh, now, and now we're watching who's going to, you know, Serena's had such a stranglehold. Who's going to, who's going to dominate. And they, and they're starting to come up They're challenger. They're beating her for a variety of, of reasons. And yet she's not done. She's, you know, she's super competitive. And in the women's side, it is compelling and exciting when Katrina won, I think she won worlds last year, didn't she? And the things that worked well for her, the, the lucky breaks, the things that went um, against Paige and that one circumstance and the, you know, uh, maybe even a little controversy, but he, but it's, it's so compelling and exciting. And for me as an enthusiast, one, I've got three daughters, 19, 21, and 23. um, And I want to see them have an opportunity to get out and play, but it's, um, it's just exciting. It's very, very exciting. It's cool to see all of those groups play. And I don't feel pressured or obligated because it's the social norm to choose one group or the other. It's fantastic competition, which just takes me, I guess, to the last point. We've been talking about this for an hour and a half. I'm geeking out. Uh, and I know we need to wrap it up here quickly, but how do people get in involved. Like, you know, I've got my own journeys where I was introduced, but if somebody just wants to kind of check it out at the local level, maybe not a, you know, it might be difficult to go to one of the big professional events that people are scrambling for, but just at a local club level, where would you recommend they start and how do they start learning more about um, the community where they are? Um, You know, to, to familiarize with, with the sport, I would say the first thing to do is to jump on YouTube check some out, check, watch some videos. Um, you know, I, I would in particular, I love all the post-production companies, but I would, I would push them to just check out Jomez, J-O-M-E-Z, yeah. Jomez Disc Golf on YouTube, pull up, you know, any, uh, any of the comp, uh, any of the tournament coverage that you find from them will give you a really good introduction to the sport. If you decide you want to go out and check it out yourself, which, uh, you know, I, I hope you will, um, you can go to, I think Facebook is a great networking place for disc golf clubs. That's where all the clubs seem to uh, have an online presence. So if you, you know, if you do a a search for your town's name and then disc golf, chances are you'll find, uh, you'll find a club listed on Facebook. Um, You can also just go and check out the the courses in your area. Um, I would recommend udisc.com to do a search for courses. 
you know, go find one that is, uh, you can learn a little bit about the courses on, on the website. You can see if it's, um, if it's, if it's highly rated, they've got a, you know, a rating system for which courses people like. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend choosing one that people tend to like, but watch out for one that's really difficult. So, you know, maybe one that has a lower par, maybe a par 54 course would be a good place to start. But mm -hmm. those are the three places, YouTube, check out Jomez, Facebook, go find your local club where you can find people to play with and people to show you the ropes and then UDISC uh, for a, an excellent course directory that'll help you go out and find a course in your area. One of the things I would, I didn't go this path, but I've seen it. So uh, I participate very little on Facebook as a, uh, a contributor, but as a consumer, I do. Um, I think more and more people are coming back to that after a few years of acrimony and other stuff so they're getting better at um you know behaving themselves but i ended up completely accidentally i was playing for many months before i ever found out that there's an atlanta disc golf club for example there's even disc golf clubs for the park that's near me that hosts these events and um, i was a little anxious about posting a question in there and then i saw the behavior of people that were just hey i'm new to this and you know i have this question Sometimes when you go into a forum like that, it can be, um, look, we got a FAQ over here, you know, go do that. Don't bug us. I've yet to experience that, whether it's just I'm Pollyanna and we're so new um, that uh, the people are still very friendly and very engaging. Um, but what was really cool was not only were questions asked, but people were encouraged, hey, we've got a local tournament in a few weeks. Come and, you know, meet the organizers at the tent, shake hands, just come and watch, just come and stand at a hole and just watch people play, introduce yourself. If you're an extrovert, you know, if you're an introvert, just watch and learn more. Many cases, at least in my area, we've got a few uh, disc golf um, shops. Uh, one of my favorite is a guy who owns an insurance company also has a disc golf shop called doggone disc golf here in my, our area. And um, you want to talk about an ambassador for the sport. Um, his name's Lincoln, and he will, um, he's such a refreshing, I find this to be, this isn't just a unsolicited shout out for him, but just, I find this over and over and over, just like any hobby, you're getting into RC cars or whatever, show up at the shop, get onto Facebook, like you were saying, ask a few questions and show up to some of the events. And um, you'll find that overwhelmingly people want to engage you in this thing that they love. And it's a family thing. I see children, adults, middle age. It's one of the few things that my wife and I, we walk out, we participate in. She doesn't play that much. She's got a shoulder thing, but um, she walks with me. We laugh, we get to meet other folks. And um, I find it really fantastic and really engaging. Yeah, the community is unbelievably welcoming, one of the most welcoming communities I've ever been a part of. And, you know, we're all at the heart. We love this. We love this sport and we we want to share it We're we're a grassroots evangel evangelists. You know, right. we want to we want to spread the word of this amazing uh, sport and this this thing that has become such an enriching part of our lives. I think almost every disc golfer you find out there is going to welcome somebody new into the community and be happy to to show them what the sport's all about. All right. Well, Matt, um, that sounds like a good spot for us to wrap it up. Thanks for coming on today. And uh, what's coming up soon in uh, PDGA tournament world? What are we looking forward to? Well, we are we're ramping up uh, for this weekend's tournament. Uh, we got uh, the Waco uh, annual charity tournament happening, uh, Waco, Texas. 
that's right. going to be on Disc Golf Network. And then the PDGA is uh, gearing up to run our first major of the year in April um, at our, our headquarters in Appling, Georgia. That's the Champions Cup. So I think you yeah. might actually be making the trip out there. I'm going to drive down there. I cannot. Uh, I can't wait. I'm so excited. And I really appreciate you coming on a uh, unusual podcast like this to come on and help us to understand more about what I think is one of the, the funnest, most exciting um, ways to get out and move and, and, and be a great human being. So thanks for coming on today. I really appreciate it. That's my pleasure, David. Thank you for having me. All right. You're welcome. And hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, please like, subscribe, comment, and share. We'll see you next time on the QTS Experience. We'll see you, everybody.